Hello! Welcome to Why Not Both. My name is Pam Schaefer, and I'm a musician and therapist in Los Angeles. Why Not Both is all about how our multiple passions inform our identity. And this season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar magazine and produced by Laura Studeris. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and come spend time with us on social media. We are at WNB the podcast, and that is both on Instagram and on Twitter. For this episode, we got to spend time with multi-instrumentalist, producer, and podcaster, Joe Wong. It was an absolute pleasure getting to hear about all the various ways that he gets to express his creativity. While you're listening to this episode, he asks you to please check out the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. It's where he donated his album pre-sales, and he would love if you support them as well. The link is in the description of our podcast. I hope that you enjoy our interview. Well, welcome to Why Not Both, where I now have learned that you secretly have a podcast as well. <laughs> what is your podcast? It's called The Trap Set, and it started as a podcast only about drummers. I saw that you had Kieran Gandhi on your show at one point, and yeah. I had her on many years ago. But um, it's been, you know, the first episode that we did was with Brendan, the drummer of Fugazi. Oh my one God. of my favorite punk bands. And then the second episode was the drummer from that played on Michael Jackson's Thriller album, which is like the poppiest pop band of all time. Oh so I wanted to hit everything in between. And we're coming up on 300 episodes now. The first 200 were only drummers. Um, you know, everybody from Sheila E to Phil Collins. And then um, during quarantine, I've been quarantine times, I've been <laughs> recording over the phone. Usually we only did it in person. Yeah. And so it's been fun to, to uh, talk to people over the phone. But, um, you know, recently we've had everybody from Sharon Van Etten to Flea to Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top and uh, just like a crazy collection of folks. Um, and uh, yeah, as I said, we opened it up to non-drummer musicians after the first couple hundred and Anyway, so that's that's like a big part of what I do too. That's amazing. Like one, I, I just thought to myself, I was like, you know, at first I thought, wow, how did you find 200 drummers? Then I actually thought about it and was like, there's way more than 200 drummers in the world, Pam. There's <laughs> well, every band needs a drummer, right? <laughs> that was literally my next thought. I was just like, yeah, that's uh that's more reasonable. And what inspired you initially to focus on drummers? Well, I play several different instruments, but drums uh, were my kind of entree into the world of music and, and my vehicle into the journey that I'm still on. Yes. <laughs> and so <clears throat> I was on tour with an artist named Marnie Stern Mm -hmm. um, in 2013 and um, I was just kind of falling out of love with touring at that time mm -hmm. um, and listening to lots of podcasts when I was traveling from place to place and I really liked the early episodes of Mark Maron's show because he seemed so desperate and neurotic and he was basically <laughs> parsing through those neuroses with comics Yes. <laughs> that the fact that they were both comics gave them an instant familiarity, even if they'd never met. 
Right. And right. Um, so at the end of the tour, Marnie's band was invited to a taping of SNL. And I ran into um, Brendan Canty, who ultimately became my first guest. And I was just asking him for life advice mm-hmm. after, the, after the taping. I was, you know, he and I spent several hours together that night. And I thought, oh, this could actually make a good podcast. So that was kind of the impetus to start it. And um, one of the kind of conceits of the show is we don't really talk about drumming. It's really just talking about life with this very specific group of people and the fact that we both share the same passion and, and, um, you know, craft gives us an instant familiarity um, that serves as a launching point into something more substantial. That makes total sense. Like most, I would say most of the people that I interview are fellow musicians. I do interview people who aren't musicians. Um, but yeah, especially when I when I do interview musicians, it's like at least I know that there's going to be some common ground there. And also the dichotomy of like, well, you're a musician, but also you do X, Y, Z. Um, because that was part of my impetus to even start it is how do you define your identity when it's like oftentimes... I don't think I actually know anyone who defines themselves just as a musician. And it's like, what do you do with the other parts of your identity? Right. Yeah. And who are you apart from, you know, the craft that you, or the, you know, the craft that you choose to practice or the vocation, you know, because you can't be a successful musician if the craft is your sole focus. Yeah, because then you kind of like, you need to also be a person too. (laughs) Right, that's where the music comes from. Exactly. It's not just like a void. Um, What I'm curious, like, what are some of the things that you feel like you've taken away from your experience podcasting? I'm like, if you're, you know, 300 episodes deep, you're really committed to that. One of the things that first struck me as really healthy about doing the podcast is that when I'm composing for other people and working for hire i'm on somebody else's timetable and by producing a weekly podcast i set up a system of accountability where i had to put something out into the world every week Mm -hmm. so it it was really nice to kind of keep that part of my creative life um you know regular yeah um but Beyond that, just through all the conversations I've had with people, um, you know, I've learned that that feeling I had that when I first started the show, um, this kind of like creative paralysis, it's just a normal, it's a normal part of the life cycle of a musician or of an artist in lots of cases. Lots of people have dealt with that. And, and um, you know, it was interesting to hear people's strategies for kind of coming back into the world of music or taking mm-hmm. a break, you know, if it didn't feel mm-hmm. right. So that was great. And and then just, you know, getting to engage in a long conversation with another human being every week has been a blessing. Yeah. And I think, you know, as I think humans are innately social animals and our society is set up in a way to kind of minimize human contact right now. Right. You know, you don't even, it's rare that you even talk on the phone with anybody. And um, 
you know, I think it, it, it was nice to have substantive, substantive conversations with folks without it being mediated by some sort of app or technology. And that's interesting that you talk about like mediated communication, because when you said that about phone calls, it's like, unless I schedule a call with someone, I'm like alarmed when my phone rings because I assume that something has like bad has happened to one of my friends, (laughs) Um, which isn't to say I don't like to talk on the phone with my friends, but if I'm not expecting them to call, I'm like, are you okay? Right. Um, And then same thing where especially now, you know, I think that people are seeing especially the value of like having deeper conversation that's not necessarily mediated by an app. Like, I don't know if you've had this experience, but talking to people sometimes online, even people you know well, it's easy to mix up kind of like the context of someone's social persona online versus everything else that goes on offline. And just having deeper conversations with people when you only engage with someone's online persona mediated by an app. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and it is, it's hard to divorce those concepts in a way though, because it's like we, you know, if you're scrolling through Instagram, that is what you see of your friends' lives at that point. Yeah. Uh, I just crave, you know, in-person connection with people, which is one of the main reasons that I'm a musician too, I think. Do you like, when you said that you would, you know, you'd kind of tired of touring do you mean like kind of the mechanics of touring itself or do you mean like you were more into like oh I really want to do some studio work right now I guess like what's your relationship with live performance it's my favorite thing in the world right now but at the time that I started the podcast which was you know about seven years ago Mm -hmm. I was just kind of burnt out I had been touring since I was 17 years old and playing in clubs since I was 14 and um I think you know, the repetition of that wore me down. And I also, if I was being honest, I I probably wasn't taking enough creative risks to keep it exciting. Mm. And so, um, you know, that I I just wasn't allowing myself to be vulnerable in the way that I would have needed to. And, uh, you know, without that, I was a bit disconnected from the people I was playing with and from the music itself. That makes sense. And that's, I feel bad that you said you're like, well, right now it's my favorite thing. And it's like, how do we negotiate like live playing right now? I mean, people in a few other countries have opened up for for live music, which is to me, at least it's inspiring. And it also makes me very wistful. Yeah. I mean, what we're going through now is far from unprecedented. There have been plenty of plagues and pandemics throughout human history, you know, and the Spanish flu did not permanently kill live performance. No. I want to minimize the fact that lots of my friends and and you know lots of musicians in general who rely on touring and live performance to make a living aren't hurting right now or that the venues and especially in the states where we don't subsidize you know the arts so well um, lots of the venues are shutting down and that's all terrible um, but I know that in a matter of a year or two, we'll be able to go back to live performance. Right. Yeah, because I think that, like you said, I, I'm curious about what will come of all of this. It's like, what will emerge when we all emerge? Like I was reading about like the retrospectives about like Spaceland and the satellite and 
it was interesting to like hear that there were so many memories imbued in that space. But I did think about the fact that I was like, oh, well, now we actually do have an opportunity to have new spaces in the future that we imbue with different memories. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and we can approach it in a different way too. Um, one of the things that I would love to explore is rather than doing one-off tours where I'm playing in a different city every night, trying residencies. And, uh, you know, that's how lots of, you know, tours operated up through the 60s, 70s, you know, bands would play in a particular town for a week in a smaller space and then move on. Mm -hmm. that, that seems more fun to me. It seems less disorienting too. Like part of tour, at least that I found kind of kerfuffling was that you're, you're technically in a different space every night, but it feels kind of like the same space because you're doing the same routine, but in it, like a different place, but it feels like the same place. It's kind of like, it's disorienting in a way. Yeah. And it's not all, it's not the most uh, environmentally friendly Yes. endeavor either so maybe we yes. can come up with some ways to make it more environmentally friendly i was talking with the norwegian artist aurora about that actually that there are different foundations uh that she's been participating with that are dedicated towards how to have like a zero carbon footprint while touring that was somebody from norway you said yeah um the artist aurora well I feel like Scandinavia is consistently ahead of us in that regard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd agree with you on that. I was just like, um, hi, we need some of that. <laughs> please, <laughs> please more. Um, Yen, I was wondering what, you know, what you're doing now because you do have this upcoming record. And I was wondering, like, what's your relationship to releasing music now that it's like right now we can't tour? Um and it's like, what do you want to do to celebrate the release? How do you want to communicate with people about what you created? Um, well, yeah, I was really looking forward to touring this album and I still will. It's just a matter of when, yeah. uh, you know, I have a fantastic band um, that's eager to go, you know, when it's safe. But in the meantime, I'm just writing a second album. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm signed to uh, Decca Records, which mm -hmm. during the 60s put out lots of my favorite albums of all time. And one thing that I like about that era is that people put out, you know, a new album every nine months or so. Um, and, uh, you know, as long as I have all this time at home, might as well just write the next one. <laughs> It's a good philosophy and I'm glad that you're able to access that creative feeling. I've talked to some people that feel both very inspired right now and then other people that feel very like kind of like paralyzed. Um, I think that that's, you know, that's common to lots of the folks that I've spoken to as well, that feeling of paralysis. Yeah. Uh, but for my job, I often have to write music when I'm not particularly inspired, I just have to figure out how to how to make it work and um, get into the zone. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that I like about uh, lots of kind of creative self help treatises, you know, from the artist way to Stephen King's on writing, is this notion that you just put in the work. It's like a it's it's a day in and day out slog and and it's almost like panning for gold and sometimes you get a nugget and lots of the time you're just getting dirt. Right. And 
I, I, I try to approach it that way. I'm nodding. You can't see me. So I figured I'd tell you. <laughs> like, I am I am nodding definitely to that of that, you know, at the very least, if you sit down and do something, you know, you don't know what's going to come out of that. Um, and I was wondering, how is that different when you're working on your own music, like when you're writing your second album versus when you are working on a scoring project? Because with that, you actually are under someone else's timeline, like you said. Right. Well, so I I wanted to make a solo album for a long time and I was constantly getting in my own way whenever I would sit down and try to start. So after a while, I decided to set up a structure that's not unlike my day job when I'm scoring on a deadline. And so I booked studio time and hired my good friend Mary Timoney to produce the album. So I would have someone to be accountable for mm-hmm. or somebody to whom I was accountable. And, um, you know, I was actually spending a little bit of my own money to record it. Yep. Um, so it felt more real and, and I had a schedule and I had to write the music in time for the session. Right. And so that's what I set up for that. And then, you know, the difference between that and, um, writing to picture is that when you're writing to picture, you have this kind of external external framework that the music has to fit into. And so that narrows down lots of options and thus like removes lots of the option anxiety that can paralyze somebody when you're starting a new creative project. Yes. And then to further narrow it down, you are working with a director or a showrunner and you're engaging in a dialogue with them and trying to facilitate their vision. So again, that's, that's um, helping define what it's going to be. And once you understand that, then the music almost writes itself. So when I'm writing my own stuff, you know, I try to create a similar structure as soon as possible, mm-hmm. uh, just so that I have a, you know, a framework within which I can create. Yeah, it's, it sounds like you're saying that like having that scaffolding helps you because otherwise if you have too many choices, then you're paralyzed for choice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like, um, at least for me, it's it's almost always like making a sculpture where you, you start with a giant slab of marble and then you create by reduction, you know? Um, mm-hmm. That's how I always see it. So removing as many options as possible is a big help. Um, yes. Anyway. No, I was just so like. Does that answer your question? <laughs> it does, and it's like I was like, no, no. Anyway, you're good. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, like when you were talking about, especially working with a team of people, that in a way it's almost easier to serve someone else's vision because there are those parameters in place, so you know where you're going. Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons, and then I would say even kind of even more prominently uh, the fact that you are not the final arbiter of whether or not it's working also relieves a lot of the creative burden that Mm -hmm. comes along with making your own statement. You don't have to decide, is this working or not? You can get it to a point where where it feels pretty good to you and then show it to somebody else and their reaction can determine, you know, the direction. Whereas right. when you're working on your own project, you have to make that choice. Yeah. And it's, 
you know, in some ways that responsibility is fantastic because you're like, oh, good, I get to control everything in my own project. But then it's very liberating when ultimately it's up to someone else. You're like, oh, I can just make stuff and you can decide. Yeah, I think it's a different type of vulnerability when you're making your own work. You know, you are putting yourself out there. Your your work is representative of who you are as a person. Whereas um, when you're working for someone else, you're still vulnerable because you're literally um, putting your work out there to be judged. Yeah. <laughs> for some reason, it's it's it feels uh, less intense to do that. Yeah, and I was wondering, like, had you put out music that you had written and produced that was solely yours prior to this? No, I've only been a member of bands. So I've, you know, been a collaborator and helped write songs with other people, but I've never done a solo album before. What did it feel like to be the arbiter of when it was done and how it was done? Well, at first it was really scary. Uh, mm -hmm. When I first started, I wanted to cancel the session that I had booked and tell my friend Mary not to fly out here. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, why I put those parameters in place because Mary didn't let me do that. And um, I, I think after I, after I recorded the first couple songs, and was feeling pretty good about how they were sounding. Then I had the momentum to finish it. And then I was more compelled to, to work on this than anything else. Right, right. I'm glad that Mary was there to keep you accountable to it. It sounds like she's like, oh no, you're not squirreling out of this. Yeah. <laughs> and it also, even though ultimately it sounds like the creative decisions were yours, that it was good to have someone there to validate what you were doing. Well, not even to validate, but to just bounce ideas off of. It's, 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 I think it's really difficult to be in a complete vacuum all by yourself and make all the choices without any feedback from anybody. And um, it's just not the way that I want to work. Um, mm -hmm. I, I like getting it most of the way there, but then having somebody who I respect who's herself has made, I don't know, a dozen albums and um, whose taste is aligned with mine was really, really helpful. And I think it was actually fun for her too, because the stuff, the weird feelings that I was experiencing and the anxiety mm -hmm. uh, is something that she's experienced and it was fun for her to be outside of it and to watch me go through it and to kind of help, um, you know, draw me away from that anxiety. Yeah, like you were saying that talking to your podcast guests, that it's like everybody kind of low-key as a creative experience is the same thing. But then when we actually talk about it, you're like, oh, you felt that way too? <laughs> um, and then we all get to kind of shepherd each other, that it's it's easier when someone else is feeling insecurities that you felt to be like, oh, let me help you. Yeah. And sometimes it's interesting to talk to people that seemingly haven't, you know, ever had those kind of insecurities, people that have just had incredible careers from the jump, you know, and then it's like, okay, well, they're, they're just a different type of person, you know. I'm like, and, who are these people? I haven't met them yet. <laughs> well, I'm not going to name any specific names, but there's oh, definitely no, I, people I out there that like, just... People out, but like, yeah. <laughs> there's definitely people that have been on my show that, you know, have 
supernatural confidence and um, the skills and talent to back it up and have, you know, had incredible runs of success, you know, both artistically and popularity wise. Um, and so even just recognizing that there's just different makeups, creative makeups to different people mm. uh, makes it easier not to compare yourself to others. Yeah, that comparison kind of thing. I Because when you're speaking, I was thinking of, you know, I was like, ah, who are these magical unicorns? Um, and then thinking, well, I don't know any of them. And then thinking, maybe I do know them, but I just don't know it yet. Um, and like you said, that everyone's creative journey might be a wee bit different. And that to compare yourself to someone who experiences, like you said, that like supernatural confidence is not beneficial, like for you or for them. No, but it is it is beneficial to just try to understand where different people are coming from. Yes. Yes. That's fascinating, though. I don't think that I've talked to anyone personally that has had, because I've talked to people who've had great success, but have expressed that even within their success, that sometimes they find doubts despite like external markers of success. And that I found actually really fascinating because oftentimes, I don't know if you've experienced this, but like I look to other artists and I'm like, oh gosh, they must feel great about X, Y, Z. And it's like, sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. Well, right. I mean, it those kind of external markers don't do much in the way of uh, quelling your inner doubts. And if you experience that kind of success too early, then the imposter syndrome that lots of people feel can be even more pronounced because yeah. you don't feel like you earned it. I'm not speaking from experience. I'm just telling you, you know, what I've heard from other people that have expressed yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of the phenomenon of like with child actors where it's like you're valued for being a child. And then all of a sudden when you're not a child, because that's not a skill, it's just sort of where you find yourself as a baby human. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> like, what do I do now? <laughs> right. And, and of course there are exceptions like people like um, Ron Howard, who's become a force in Hollywood himself or Shirley Temple went on to be a diplomat. Yeah. But for every Shirley Temple, there's a, there's a thousand Danny Bataducci's or Corey Hames in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And it's strange thinking about, you know, when you did say that this was your first solo album, I was just like, oh, that's a really interesting thing that you took upon yourself to be like, okay, I've always been in bands. What's this other experience like? Right. And, and aside from being in bands, I'd never sung in the front of the stage before. So it's completely different. Have you performed any of your stuff out live now or have you not had the opportunity yet because I'm like gestures to everything because of our current quarantines? Yeah, I, I did one show, which was sort of a proof of concept um, that informed how we set up the tour that's now delayed. But we did one show here in Los Angeles at a place called the Masonic Temple, um, which is on the campus of Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Love and that. it was, um, you know, it was great. It was with um, Mary Timoney on guitar, Mary Lattimore on harp, Chrysanta Baker from the band Low Moon on keyboards, my good friend Chad Malter, who played in a couple uh, DC bands on the Discord label uh, mm -hmm. on bass, 
um, Matt Cameron from Soundgarden and Pearl Jam on drums, um, Stella Mazgava from Warpaint also on drums, uh, and then a full string section and horn section. And yeah, so at the end of the day, there were 20 people on stage. Oh my and God. we were able to replicate the album pretty faithfully and it was um, extremely scary and also um, really, really fun. It sounds like if you're gonna do the whole tour in one gig, that's that sounds like the ideal. <laughs> like that sounds amazing and also terrifying to be the front person of that as your first time being like a front person. Right. Yeah. Especially since so many of the people that were in my band are heroes of mine, and it just felt so <laughs> alien to be standing out in front. But on the other hand, I think all of um, the time that I've spent as a touring musician and as a composer and all of the skills that I've developed, you know, producing television and producing music projects, all of those skills um, kind of reached, they, they all intersected and, and I was able to pull it off in a way that I felt good about. That's awesome. Cause yeah, like when you are in the supporting roles or when you are bringing someone else's vision to life, that's very different than when you're the one in front and being like, okay, these people are acting in service to my creative vision. Yeah, but by doing, by servicing so many other people's creative vision, I knew what band members need and I knew what I like to be treated like and how I want to yeah. be um, like, how I want things to be organized. And I, I feel like I was very conscientious of that and, and tried to set up um, a really nice creative environment for everybody. I'm like, I'm glad that you had the capsule of that show. I'm like, I hope that that keeps you going for when eventually the tour does happen. I'm like, that sounds like it went beautifully. Yeah, uh, I, I was even thinking if if the quarantine drags on for a while, maybe it would be fun to try to figure out how to play an outdoor show to maybe no audience and just film it so I could document this band and this set of music. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll see if that's possible. It's, it would require some people to fly down here. Yeah. It's very, I, I saw there was footage of another friend's band that I saw where people were playing distance outside, but it was a much smaller band. It was, I think, four people um, where they were all playing on like different sides of a yard <laughs> so that everyone could be distanced, but still share acoustic space. Yeah, I've seen some uh, videos like that too, and it looks pretty fun. In fact, there's some great musicians in my neighborhood, so we were thinking about <laughs> playing on a front lawn or something like that. Yes. One of, my, next couple of weeks. one of my friends that lives up in the Bay Area gave a cello performance from her balcony. Well, um, we recently shot a music video for two of the songs on the album that kind of run one into the next. And um, we shot everybody from outside of their windows and it has this very voyeuristic quality to it. But some of the string players, um, like one of the violinists does concerts from her balcony, I think maybe every, every night at a certain time. But oh, wow. um, that, that was really fun. Oh my God. I was just like, I love that. I do love seeing like, what are people doing now that we can't be in the same space? I've seen so many interesting like FaceTime photo shoots. I'm really fascinated by how people do that. 
Yeah, I, I haven't I haven't seen any of that yet, but um, <laughs> you know, whatever it takes for people to connect. Yeah, yeah. That, like you said, that is what people want during this, and that is that sounds like when you're podcasting, like that is what you're looking for. It's just like actually having like an unmediated conversation with someone. And it is strange to me that we have organized our society that that's a luxury or like a scarcity. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think lots of lots of um, components of our society are organized to obscure the existential dread that lots of people are experiencing now because of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, like this, I think capitalism <laughs> is like a way of distracting distracting us from our impending doom, which is happening with or without COVID. You know what I mean? Like right. it's it's like one of the essential facts of being a human is that we we know in the back of our head that we're not here for very long. Right. But if we buy things and you know aspire towards things, it makes us forget about that. Well, and strangely, it's like it ameliorates the pain of it, but it it's not, it's like a neutral activity. It's not doing something that's necessarily generative. It's like, while we're here, it sounds like when you were talking about, hey, as long as I'm here, why not write my second album? Like, that's something that's generative, that you're like, okay, I have limited time. How do I want to spend it? Cool, I'll make some stuff. Yeah, and I mean, I guess you could argue that making art and trying to leave some sort of legacy is, again, a way of trying to become immortal and live beyond your physical existence to a certain extent, you know, or the, lots of people have said on my show that it was to attract, you know, is to have gain access to sex, <laughs> being in yep. a band or whatever. Yep. Um, which again, that's, that's, that's pretty much the most generative thing you can do. Um, <laughs> to make more of you. Yeah, but I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that the sun's gonna burn out and no one will ever remember this civilization, you know, after a certain period of time. Right. So it, it, it's not even a matter of it being generative, it's just a matter of uh, it being fulfilling in the moment for me to do that. Um, yeah. I always, I found as a child that I found the concept of entropy really comforting, that I'm like, oh, everything's expanding and contracting in chaos. And in a way that was very freeing. Um, I was like, okay, so that frees me up to then enjoy what I'm doing now because it low-key doesn't matter. Right. But in a good way, not like a dark nihilistic way. I mean, like a really cheerful nihilistic way. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's up to us to determine whether or not things that we do matter. We assign meaning to things, you know? Um, and, and so y you can choose, you know, whether or not <laughs> whatever you're engaging in has a deeper meaning to you. Yeah. And about like, when you were talking about, especially that you were like, oh, I'm burnt out on touring, but now like playing live is my favorite thing. It's like also knowing that meaning can change over time. Absolutely. I was just thinking that I was like, oh, I really wish I'd seen that show at the Masonic Temple. Cause I'm like, I love that spot. And that sounded amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll, you'll get to see it again someday. 
Yeah, I was just like, I hope that everybody gets to come together again for that. That sounds phenomenal. They will. I mean, it, I, 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 this might last a couple of years, but it's not going to last forever. No. And it might do some serious damage to the infrastructure around live music. But some of that was kind of poisonous anyway. And so, um, you know, maybe it's an opportunity to rebuild in a more healthy way. I do find that that's been the conversation around some of the social structures in general that I don't know if you've been having the same with people, but like, especially around like the protests and things like that about, you know, like why now are people really challenging our social structures? And I think you spoke to something that's important that in a way like capitalism has stopped us from doing that before because we've been occupied by other things. Right. I mean, um, it's interesting because, uh, you know, have, working in TV, uh, in the streaming era or the so-called golden era of television. Mm -hmm, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like people are just that much more anesthetized to what is going on in the world because you can watch, you can binge Mad Men or, or The Wire right. or Master of None. And it feels, it almost fulfills, um, you know, uh, uh, the role that real engagement can have uh, in somebody's life. Like if you're watching a, a thoughtful, thought-inducing show, sometimes it just ends with that. And it feels like, oh, okay, well that changed my outlook, but then it doesn't translate to action. <laughs> yeah. There's another show to watch. <laughs> and it's also when, when you were saying that, you know, I think about the people who created those shows and that the reason why people often create things, not always, but is like, to connect or to spread a message or to communicate with another human being. And in some ways then it's fulfilled if they did that, but then it's also not if that doesn't then translate into that person's interactions with others or their actions. If like you said, they just go on and watch something else. Right. And thinking about that, uh, I was talking with another friend about why people watch their like their favorite shows over and over again and it's because people do almost form like a quasi friendship with their favorite characters yeah i'm doing that right now um with larry sanders wow i was like what's that like tell me more <laughs> <laughs> well i think i think gary shandling is one of the most brilliant comedic minds of the 20th century and that show came out when I was a teenager and I didn't fully understand it at the time. Um, but watching it now, especially as somebody who works in Hollywood, it's, it's I relate to it. And then it, it's also a great nineties time capsule. And the cast is amazing. Rip Torn, um, Janine Garofalo, um, Jeffrey Tambor is great in it. Um, mm -hmm. despite his, uh, cancellation more recently. Um, and then uh, Scott Thompson from The Kids in the Hall has a great role. Um, and then all the guests. It's just great. <laughs> I love it. That's a phenomenon that I am in touch with when it comes to my musical taste, because there's certain music that I'll love for certain parts of my life. And then I fall out of love with it and can't listen to it anymore. And sometimes actively dislike it later and then oh, wow. it comes back around. And vice versa. I mean, growing up in the 80s, I really had a strong disliking of Phil Collins's music. But then um, 
maybe because I got older and also because I got more familiar with his weirder work that preceded his solo work with Genesis mm -hmm. and with Brian Eno and all sorts of great other artists. It, it brought me back into the fold. And then I kind of got obsessed with having him on the podcast and, and, and his first few solo albums, I think are, you know, equally as brilliant as anything else that he did and um, underrated. And so that's interesting to me because I hated that stuff. Um, in the eighties, I just, it didn't touch me, you mm -hmm. know, as a child. And then by the time I was a teenager, um, you know, like in 1991, Genesis got back together and came out with the uh, I Can't Dance song. Oh, yeah. Year that like Nirvana, Nevermind came out and Soundgarden, Bad Mode with the Finger. And then shortly after, um, like The Chronic came out. So it was kind of a watershed year for Gen X music. And that was infinitely uh, more attractive to me at the time. And then led me to into punk rock so mm -hmm. it's just interesting how things how things can come and go yeah and it's almost like as as your lenses change that you can then view art through different lenses and engage with it differently that's so interesting and I didn't realize the proximity in which all of those came out like my brain just went oh my god that was all at the same time and looking back on it I'm like oh yeah that was I remember having my cassette tapes of all of those records and it also didn't seem strange to me that I had cassette tapes of all of those records because I found each of them interesting I think for different reasons like my little Pam brain at the time was just like I don't know how to put it as a child when you're engaging with things like non-critically I don't know how to frame that it's more just like if I liked something I liked it and I didn't question why I liked it or didn't like it I was just like oh well this is okay I'll listen to this uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the healthiest way to engage with music even now. Uh, and I don't really think there's much, I don't have much use for my critical mind. Like it's there and it criticizes, <laughs> especially my own thing. But, you know, it, it just really, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, it, it, I think it's, it, that mind that you that, that child's mind that you were talking about where you if you like something you like it is the purest way to connect to art yeah and i just didn't question it like it wouldn't have occurred to me to question why i was listening to all of that it was just like i would save up my allowance money and then my babysitting money and buy as many albums as i could yeah and i think at that time music was much more of a social signifier than it is now it was it, indicator of which tribe you belong to yeah. and so that's that's interesting to me because I don't think younger people have that same relationship to music um, and I think that's a positive thing I think it's negative that um, you know absent physical media you're not forced to engage with music in quite as active a way like you're not actively listening as much at least I, I'm finding that it's when I stream records it doesn't feel as intentional as if I actually put a record on. Yeah, and you don't have to go through kind of, you know, not to be all old person yelling at cloud, but like all the rigmarole of like going to a record store and picking out a record and strategizing like how much money you have for each of them. It's like it was a much more intentional act, at least in my experience. Yeah, and I think that's, I think that's lacking. And I, I, I miss that because I think it, I think the result is that music has become devalued to a certain extent. And if you can just switch from one thing to another, 
sometimes you don't have the patience to really dive in and understand the brilliance of something. Whereas when you only had enough money for one record or CD or tape or whatever, and you're, and you had to agonize over which one to get that week, yes, your allowance money, if you didn't like it right away, you had to give it a second, third, fourth chance. And often then you start discovering the brilliance on repeated listenings. Oh yeah. And so we don't do that as much anymore, but I do think it's cool that, um, you know, music isn't seen as like a tribal signifier as much as it was. So yeah. there's good and bad, but. Um, I'm glad that you brought that up. Cause yeah, I remember even that there were certain things that were considered like boy music and girl music, which I found very odd. I did find it interesting that, for instance, when I bought that Tori Amos record, that was coded as girl music. Right. And at the time, I mean, a little bit after that came out in like the, I would say around 96 or so, there was a women's radio format that kind of coincided with the early Lilith Fair um, yeah. kind of lineup. And so there, there was, I don't know if Clear Channel or one of the other radio giants kind of created this format, but it didn't last for very long, but it was like, this is the women's kind of like lighter music channel. <laughs> yeah. But the goal is to, you know, be as much yourself as she is herself with the music, right? Like she's definitely somebody that tapped into something unique uniquely her, unique to her experience and was able to put it out into the world. I mean, obviously you could hear some of her influences, maybe like a little Kate Bush in there and things like that. But um, I don't know, I, I think it, that she stands, like, like I said, I think her work stands up and she, you know, obviously she's a singular artist. Yeah. So the goal isn't to be like them it's to be as much like yourself as possible I mean that's what I realized I really like that philosophy of like to be to take inspiration in their work by being the most yourself because it's like you're you're really the only you much like Tori is the only Tori it's like you get to be the only you and so you get to be as you as possible in your work right and I think you know as somebody who who studied music in a formal setting, you know, there's a lot of emphasis put on studying the history of it and learning how to play certain things that other people have done historically. And while I think that stuff is super healthy in some cases, that um, you can never sound like somebody else. <laughs> you can't walk across the room with the same gait as somebody else. You can't, um, you know, you can't have all the flaws as somebody else, yeah. and, you know, and so it's a losing, it's a losing proposition. Um, but it's safer, you know, it's safer to, to think, oh, well, first I have to learn the history of this instrument and have like a full grasp of, you know, the scope of what I'm doing and be able to master the technical side of it and be able to quote all these other artists and know that all the standards because once you get once you get into that then you're you're invulnerable you know you're you're, mm -hmm. you're you forgot that you're trying to write poetry and now you're just studying the dictionary or the history book you know um right it's almost like you're like outsmarting yourself right which is 
I don't know if this happened to you, but I feel like at least when I started writing, I was more concerned with being clever and in a way, like you said, like invulnerable. And it's only once I kind of got that out of my system that I could then be more me in my work. Yeah, I mean, I think that intentional cleverness is kind of like a, a layer of armor and it's it really can only distract. Right. You know, uh, right. and the same thing goes with overt virtuosity in most cases. Like, and that's not to say that I don't like clever virtuosos, but only if it's, only if those qualities are necessary to express something personal about those people. Yeah, it's like if it's in service to the idea, I don't know if you've had this experience, but sometimes only realize really after listening to something over and over and over and over and really emotionally enjoying it, I'll only sometimes after that experience really start looking at how cleverly something is put together and I'll appreciate that for its own right. But it's like if I notice too soon that something's clever, it doesn't necessarily ruin the emotional effect. But I, I, it like stands out because instead of being in service to it, it's like, oh, then I just realized, oh, that's really clever. Right. Yeah. It's like somebody getting in front of a room and talking about how smart they are. Right. Right. That it's like, or you could just demonstrate and then we'll learn through your actions that. Also, it doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't matter. It's, that's not what I'm looking for in art. You know, I'm not yeah. looking to to wonder at somebody else's intelligence. I'm, I, w- I want to feel something and I want to feel a connection to that person. And if intelligence is a tool that is used to con- to get the idea across, then great. That's so interesting. There's a part of me that does emotionally connect, I think, with being dazzled by someone's intelligence, I guess, or cleverness. Like I sometimes will feel an emotional resonance when something's like really well put together. I'll find that satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then sometimes it's kind of like a bodybuilder showing up to a marathon, right? Like they're <laughs> big and bulky and ostentatious, but they're not going to be able to run the race because they have too much weight on them. That's a really funny way of putting that. <laughs> showing up and being just like, look at how strong I am. <laughs> right, or like a spelling bee champion trying to write poetry. Right. Right. And after all, you're like, okay, glad that you're a human thesaurus there, but. Written music is a mod is a relatively modern invention. You know, people, mm-hmm. old songs were passed down through the generations or from person to person. Um, and there are still some incredibly sophisticated oral traditions, especially in drumming, like in India and mm-hmm. Africa. Um, and I don't think that that music is any more um, profound than music that came after the written, you know, written music. Mm-hmm. And and so I mean, you you can you can just follow the the line from that to recorded music to computers and apps and whatever tools we have now. And um, you know, they're all just different writing utensils. Yeah, and thinking about the like the oral tradition of carrying songs, I think about like even some of the cadences like that I grew up hearing, like 
in synagogue, like listening to Jewish prayers and certain melodies and things like that, that there's all these little minute variations, depending on like when you're chanting Torah, that's all passed down. Just there's no, there's no written rule of it. That's just how you do it. And you learn it by hearing it. And then you learn how to adapt to all of the little changes when you're chanting by just hearing other people do it. I, I do think about that. Um, because lots of my favorite 20th century songwriters are like, you know, Carol King, yeah. Neil Diamond, Lou yeah. Reed, uh, Leonard Cohen, um, lots of the Tin Pan, Pan Alley show tunes writers. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. But um, I think there's also a narrative tradition in Jewish culture of it's almost like it relates in my brain weirdly to like the ancient Greek tradition of telling stories through song of like the rhapsodes that would go to parties and recite the epic poems. Mm -hmm. That it's like there's a tradition of essentially singing the stories and that it's also important to preserve memory through stories. Mm -hmm. And so those are shared, but it's through song. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I was curious also, what instruments, you said that like drumming was kind of the first, but you said that you started playing in, in clubs when you were like 14. And I was like, what were you playing? And how did you get into clubs when you were 14? Well, when I was 14, I was playing drums and um, my dad would drive me or it, there would be all ages shows. Um, but if it was a drinking show, my dad would drive me. And the other kids in the band were older and had licenses. So um, once the people started to know me, then I could get in without having a parent there. Um, and then we tried to play lots of all ages shows too. Right, right. That's cool though that your parents were supportive of that, or at least it sounds like from what you said that if your dad is driving you that he was supportive. They were super supportive and they even let me, you know, tour across the country when I was still a minor. Oh, wow in like a $600 van. <laughs> Maybe they figured they had, my, my parents had four other kids all younger than me. So they probably just figured if I died in a fiery crash on my tour that they would have, you know, they had, they still had enough heirs. They were playing the odds with their resources. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, hearing about parents that, you know, have varying degrees of support when you're younger, especially are your parents in the arts at all or? Not at all. And I think they, I don't know that they took it. I didn't, I don't know that they actually thought I was going to pursue music as a career mm -hmm. because we knew nobody that did that. Yeah. Um, so there was really no there's nobody for me to talk to about what it's like and, and no one for me to kind of observe. Um, one of the kids in my grade school class uh, had a father who was a professional drummer that I met a couple of times. But aside from that, you know, there was really, I really had never met anybody who was a professional musician, not on a local level and not on a national or international level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and trying to figure that out without a blueprint is, uh, that's ambitious and daunting that you probably didn't realize that at the time when you started. Well, I also embraced DIY and punk. And so I wasn't really, I, you know, my, the gold standard for success was a band like Fugazi, who right. charged $5 for all ages shows, were very ethical in all of their practices. Um, and we're not huge rock stars. I mean, this was 
during the heyday of MTV and you know corporate rock radio, and they weren't involved with any of that stuff, yet they still carved out a niche for themselves and kind of created a touring circuit from the ground up and just mm -hmm. made it work. Um, so I thought that was really inspiring and I related to that. Well, also that it's like in a way, like we were talking about before about even the effects of capitalism on social awareness, but it's like uh, to not kind of include that in your definition of success. Right. And um, I mean, I, I definitely do include it in my definition of success now and to a certain extent. Like I think, you know, my goal is to have the resources to make the art that I want to be able to spend time working with people that inspire me and then as a byproduct, make a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> only if it's a, as a byproduct, you know. Right. Right. And the only reason why I need to make a lot of money is because real estate is so expensive out here. <laughs> well, and I think that I was reading um, this book by Jen Sincero about one's views on money. And I liked her idea that money is a medium of exchange, that it's like money itself is like a neutral concept and it's like well what are your narratives around money because money certainly can be used in an extraordinarily negative way money can also be used in a positive way and so it's like what's your narrative around having money and what you use money for right i think of it like calories right like you want to have enough calories to survive and maybe a little extra here and there um, but if you ingest too many then it becomes unhealthy Right. But, um, you know, I, I kind of see making music in the world that we're in almost, I see a parallel between that and farming. And the artistic process of actually making the work is kind of like, you know, actually planting and, and um, you know, tending to the crops. But, and then if you want to just do it for your own you know, your own passion or for your own fulfillment, then you can choose to, you know, have a garden in your yard and feed your family with the vegetables that you grow. Mm -hmm. But if your goal is to put something out into the world, then it's also your responsibility to think about how you're going to bring it to market, mm -hmm. you know, and does that mean that you are going to make certain compromises so that you can get into you know, so that you can get an account selling your eggs to McDonald's <laughs> or are you an organic farmer that wants to sell it in, you know, um, co-ops around the country? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's all about like, what, what do you really want? Honestly, like, what do you want the, the reach of your music to be? And then knowing that you are um, mostly removed from that, you know, once you actually put it out there for people they're either going to like it or respond to it or they won't. And you have absolutely no control over that. What, what can you do to put your best foot forward and to, you know, bring it to market in a way that's consistent with your values? I like that idea of like, what can you, like what's within your control that you can do to essentially give it like its best launch, but then ultimately it is up to other people. And even knowing like we were talking about before that people's views may change on your art. Right. It, and the other thing is, you know, there's so many artists that there, there, well, there's a notion that artists should only want to create for the act of creation. And I don't think that's true because that removes the, that component of human connection. And it, and 
I also think, you know, musical ideas or artistic ideas come from outside of us and they filter through whatever, you know, bio circuitry we have, which is the product of our own, you know, genetics and experience. And then mm -hmm. we put them out. So it's not even ours to begin with. It's just something that we had custody of or we're the midwife or something. And so it kind of belongs to the world in a way. And so, you know, music is an innately social medium. And I think it's somewhat disingenuous to think that every artist should only want to uh, create for him or herself mm -hmm. and not put it out into the world. And I think lots of people adopt that posture because it's scary to put something out in the world, especially since, like you said, you don't have control over how it's being received. Yeah. But you do have control over how it's being presented. Yeah. And it's, it goes back to what you said almost at the very beginning of like the vulnerability of having your own solo project. And that I'm so glad that like you called in the accountability of Mary to be like, nope, <laughs> you're going in the studio. Um, that it is ultimately vulnerable to even say like, hey, I put this out because part of me does want to connect. Right. Exactly. And some people might say, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> They might be like, I, can I hang up this connection? <laughs> but that's okay, because you don't need those people. You right. know, you only need a very, very small percentage of the population to enjoy what you do or to connect with what, what you do. Yeah, it sounds cheesy, but whenever someone, I don't know if you feel the same way, but whenever someone messages me, like, to say that something I created connected with them, like, that to me is, like, honestly, one of the most exciting things. Like, I'm just like, a thing that I made that was my emotional experience connected to your emotional experience. And now you're telling me about that. That's awesome. Right. And I think there's also this kind of mentality out there that that should have no bearing on your art. And, you know, once it's out in the world, then you should move on and forget about it. But I think that's a bit disingenuous too, because, you know, it's great if you can make something that helps somebody else. Yeah. Like I think about, you know, when people talk about, oh, do you ever want to talk to your favorite artist? It's like, you know, in some ways, I, obviously I find them fascinating, but then, you know, in other ways, really the only thing I'd want to express is like, thanks for making something that resonated with me. Like, Well, people say that you should never yeah. meet your heroes because they'll more often than not let you down, which the, the underlying premise of that maybe is that, you know, you build someone up to be larger than human in your mind and then they let yeah. you down or that that people that make great work are often troubled individuals themselves with difficulty connecting in the real world. But I've never really found that to be true. And I've met lots of my heroes <laughs> you know, and, and had great experiences with just about all of them. Well, I find that what you're saying kind of speaks to at least my idea of like kind of fandom or like idol worship in a way with artists where like, I thankfully have had similar experiences to you where when I, I have had the opportunity to talk to artists who have been meaningful to me, like, I don't know if it's just the attitude that I treat them in the way of, yes, they created something that I super enjoy and value, but they're also a, another human being. And also knowing that like, I just because I know their work doesn't mean that I know them. I know something that they put out, but I don't know them as a human being. Um, and it's like, I, I guess I haven't been disappointed in that way because I don't have the expectation that they're going to be something other than a person who made something that I like. 
Well, that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess I did see that a lot. I don't know if you experienced this in fandoms of artists um, in like, I guess, especially in the nineties that, especially when like the internet really started going with fandoms. And now I see it in like, you know, like Stan culture where it's like, people will get so invested in the concept of an artist that I'm like, do you even like this person's artistry? Like, what you doing? I'm very curious about that. Yeah, but I can relate to that too. I mean, there's certain artists that I, I, you know, I have a fantasy version of them in my mind. And I, I think that's like the great thing about music is that it's, it's not a complete work of art until someone hears it and kind of experiences it in their own way. Right. It's like, it's, um, it's part of the process. It's, it's, it's that final part of the artistic process to me is when the world interacts with it. Hmm. I guess what are some of your favorite albums that like you've interacted with in that way? Well, um, let's see if I go back to the beginning, I guess the first one I ever had was Thriller by Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that's an early one. And then, you know, as a teenager, the Fugazi catalog, the, the blonde redhead catalog, I was starting to get really into to, uh, artists like Albert Eiler um, and John Coltrane. And I think, you know, probably A Love Supreme is one of the albums I've listened to the most. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then, people like uh, Scott Walker and um, Kate Bush mm-hmm. have such vivid imagery in their lyrics that it creates a whole world that envelops me when I listen to that. But I don't know, I guess everything that I listen to, I, I'm hoping, you know, I think to a certain extent kind of creates its own little world, but it's, it's, it becomes something new once, once somebody else experiences it, you know what I mean? It's, it's a, uh, the lyric takes on new meaning once it's filtered through someone else's sensibility and the, and yeah. so does the music. They're hearing it completely different. Well, and especially with the opportunity of recorded music that people can have their own, almost like I thought of it in a way as like little capsule experiences with that music because then, yeah. when, you know, you can create whatever circumstance you want to listen to that and the artist can't control that. Well, I think, you know, records for me are like the mile markers of my life. Like I can, I can, I frame my own history and my memories around what music I was listening to at the time. Like I can remember events around what I was hearing at the time. And so that enables me to kind of keep track of what year certain things transpired. That's fascinating. <laughs> I was like, that's really cool. Now I'm wondering of my own experience. I was like, I can kind of do that now that when I am actually thinking about it, I can reflect upon it, but I hadn't thought of framing memory that way. Yeah, for me, it's really like if I think about a certain artist or, you know, a song, I can remember what year it came out. And then I remember, you know, what grade I was in and what classes I had and which teachers, you know, I liked and who was in my, my class at the time. And I, I just can remember singing the songs as I walked home from school and things like that. It, the, the music is like the key. It's kind of like what you were saying with Hebrew storytelling, but it, for me, it, it's my own, you know, records are my, like I 
they're they're my mile markers. Yeah, there's certain touchstones that when you say that, I can hear certain touchstones in my mind of different time periods that I'm like, when I listen to those, I'm not necessarily like jettisoned back into that time period, but it's associated with a very specific set of memories. Right. I guess in closing, what would you say to other artists during this time who are creating during unusual circumstances? What would I say to them? Just keep yeah. going if you can. And if you can't, be compassionate with yourself and um, eat a pizza and um, <laughs> watch, watch a great movie or go for a walk and, you know, eat, eat a kale salad. <laughs> <laughs> Balance out that pizza. Get you some can. in there. Do something that brings you joy. And um, I think like, like what we said is, you know, the music and art comes from outside of you. And the fact that you're not able to connect with other people in person might have a big, might be a big factor as to why you're feeling creatively stifled right now. Um, so maybe you can find ways to connect to people um, absent in face-to-face -face interaction. And if you can't, you know, just be compassionate and, and do something nice for yourself. I like that of being compassionate to yourself and treating yourself well, because then in essence, one, probably feel a little better, but also it make you a better conduit for those ideas that you were talking about, that if these ideas are floating around us and we are just kind of, you know, bringing them to light and using them to communicate with people, it sounds like taking care of yourself would uh, only better your capability to do that. Right. Treat yourself the way that you would treat an artist if you were producing them. Oh, yes. As long as you're a good producer. <laughs> right. But half of the things that I catch myself saying to myself, I would never just say to another human being. Right. You know, it, when I'm being critical. And so I think that that kind of self-criticism has been productive to a certain point, but at this stage in my life, it's, it's no longer the most powerful mode of, you know, dialogue with myself. Yeah. And being compassionate and being supportive of yourself as opposed to tearing yourself down. Sounds like it might be a better route. Well, I mean, what I'm learning from releasing this album is that I have, I'm in charge of being the number one advocate for my own work. And um, that's my responsibility. And so I have to choose how I'm going to show up. If I show up in a deeply self-deprecating, self-doubtful way, that's contagious. But if I can, you know, treat it the way that I would treat another artist if I was excited about their work and managing them, then yeah. that attitude translates. Yeah, it's like you set the tone. It's kind of like you said that it's like ultimately you're you're responsible for it, which is frightening, but also powerful. Right. And nobody else will or should care as much as you about the work that you make. Yes. Yes. I yet again, I'm nodding and you can't see that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yes, I am nodding sagely to the sage words that you have just said. Yeah. If you show up for yourself, then other people will too. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for joining me on Why Not Both. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Why Not Both. If you liked what you heard, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. You can also come hang out with us on social media. We are at WNB the podcast, both on Instagram and on Twitter. This season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar magazine. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print, music, and entertainment magazine and website. You can find them at www.undertheradarmag.com and feel free to support them on Patreon. Extra special thanks to our producer, Laura Studeris, who is literally a rock star. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you next episode. 